when I contacted David during the week to say, hi David, we've got quite a long chapter in Nehemiah, we're just going to have bits of it. He was probably thinking, oh great, we can leave out those bits with those difficult names. Uh, so I better say, start on this uh, talk all about forgiveness by saying sorry to David for leaving in those difficult names. But they're very well read, thank you very much. Because I do want to think about saying sorry and forgiveness this morning. That I think is the key, big theme of Nehemiah chapter 9, is God's people kind of recounting their story, reminding themselves firstly of how often they got it wrong, but then also equally how often God showed them forgiveness. And here they are again saying sorry to God in a very visual, very public way. They're wearing sackcloth, which is really itchy. Uh, they're fasting from food and they're even putting uh, dust on their heads uh, as a sort of sign of how sorry they are. Not only for the things they've done wrong, but for the generations before them as well. But as they do that, they're reminded and they're reminding us that even when we do get things wrong, when we come to God, he forgives us. When we truly say sorry, he truly forgives us. And that is really important because I think a lot of the time around us, we encounter forms of saying sorry and forms of forgiveness which actually are a little bit shallow, a little bit thin. They don't really address the fact that when we get something wrong, it's really serious. And they also don't really have a proper way to be forgiven. Let me illustrate a little bit what I mean. I, growing up, was a big fan of watching The Simpsons. And there's this perfect picture of that in The Simpsons. When Homer, the dad of the family, who's a bit of an idiot, does something wrong again, and he turns to Marge, his wife, and he says to Marge, Marge, I'm really sorry, but honestly, I never thought you'd find out. Or take a public figure who's done something wrong, who's, who's shown to be getting something wrong or made a mistake, how often do you hear them stand up and say, I'm really sorry I got it wrong? Not very often. What you hear is, I'm sorry, but. I'm sorry, but we didn't have all the facts. I'm sorry, but we were trying to do this. And it, There's always a, a clause, very rarely in public life, do you hear someone who's clearly got something wrong actually stand up and say, I'm sorry, I got it wrong. I think in our culture around us, we don't really address the seriousness of things that are wrong, and so we don't really know how to forgive people properly, which takes account of the seriousness, but then says, I genuinely forgive you, even though it's going to cost me something to do so. But what I think we see in Nehemiah 9, and in fact the whole story of the Bible, is a different way of understanding what it means to be sorry and what it means to be forgiven. God's way of saying sorry, a real change in our heart, and God's real forgiveness, genuine, costly, life-changing forgiveness. Now recently I uh, hired something, a piece of equipment, for about a month, but because of COVID and lockdowns and things like that, I ended up hanging on to this piece of equipment for about 15 months. I held on to it for so long that if they charged me for every month that I'd hired it for, I think I would have, could have been cheaper to buy two lots of it in the first place outright. So when I eventually, and you know that thing as well, once you've gone past a few months, it becomes increasingly difficult to actually own up and go back, doesn't it? The longer it goes on, the harder, and you know it's getting worse, and yet it becomes so difficult to actually own up to it and take it back. It's a bit like going to the dentist, isn't it? 
Well, eventually it got on so long that I had to take this piece of equipment back to the place I'd hire for. And all the way there, I was thinking, please don't charge me for those extra months. Please let COVID be an excuse. And thankfully, they didn't. Uh, They're very nice to me. And when I got there, they said, don't worry about it. Doesn't matter. We wouldn't have been able to hire it out anyway at the moment. It's not a big deal. We'll let you off. Massive sense of relief. Huge sense of relief. Uh, Not only in my heart, but also in my wallet. But did they forgive me? I don't think that that is a story of forgiveness. Because what they said was, it didn't really matter. Don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. It hasn't cost anyone anything. We'll just pretend it never happened. And often, I think, in the world, that is what we think forgiveness is. We think it means saying, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. It doesn't matter. It didn't cost anything. So we think forgiveness means. We think it means pretend it never happened. But I want to say to you this morning from Nehemiah 9 and from fact from all of the Bible that real forgiveness addresses head on the fact that when we do something wrong it does matter, it is a big deal and it costs a lot to forgive. But when you realise that you get a forgiveness which has genuinely and truly dealt with it. It's faced up to the fact that when we do things wrong they really are wrong and it's done something about it which makes you know that you really are free and forgiven. It's not just forgotten about, it's dealt with. And that's what we see in Nehemiah 9. In fact, it's what we see through the whole Bible. It's what we see at the peak of the Bible story when Jesus goes on the cross. And that's what we're going to think about together this morning. Because our culture, I think, doesn't really know what to do with sorry and forgiveness. It doesn't really take the seriousness of things that are wrong seriously enough. And neither does it really provide a genuine forgiveness when actually people have got things wrong. Let me illustrate that with a hot topic. Racism. We've seen again in recent weeks the ugliness of racism. You want to know why England footballers keep talking about it? Well, read the messages they got when they missed those penalties. We know it's wrong. But our culture is increasingly trying to be one which holds up tolerance as the highest value. Live and let live. Everyone, you know, do what's right for you and Don't worry about it. There's no real such thing as right and wrong. Everyone can make their own choices. We just need to tolerate each other. Which sounds really nice, doesn't it? And you're probably thinking, hang on, Tom, are you about to say that we shouldn't tolerate people? Well, not quite. But tolerance has a limit. It sounds good on the surface until you come up against something which actually is self-evidently wrong. Like racism. You can't tolerate racism. We know it's wrong and it should be dealt with. It is a big deal. It does matter. We should do something about it. So simply trying to be tolerant of it suddenly falls apart. We don't want to tolerate that. We don't want a society where that's tolerated. Like lots of other things that we know are wrong. Murder. Theft. Small portions. Whatever it is. We don't want to tolerate that. The problem with our society is in trying to hold up tolerance above all else... What do you do when something happens that clearly you don't want to tolerate? Well, what we've seen recently is that you end up often swinging too far the other way. 
And those people that have done something wrong are, instead of giving the opportunity of changed and being forgiven, they're cancelled. They're written off. There was another incident, again, racism. A cricketer, a guy called Ollie Robinson, just started playing cricket for England. And it came to light that 10 years earlier, as a teenager, I think he was about 18, 19, he tweeted on Twitter some very you know, unpleasant tweets uh, that were racist and sexist 10 years before. And that came out as he was starting to play cricket for England. Uh, and people rightly were upset about that and said, this is wrong. He came out and apologised and, and said that he was prepared to um, go on some you know, courses to help him understand and to change. It hadn't happened for 10 years. He apologised to his teammates. He apologised publicly to the country. And he was punished for it. And I think most people say, that's right, you do something wrong, you face the consequences. But culture decided to, a lot of, some areas of culture, some people within our culture wanted to go further than that. Some people came out, several commentators came out and said, there are some things that should never be forgiven. Now understand that they don't want it to be seen as a minimal issue, but do you see where I'm going with this? That if you're trying to tolerate everything, (coughs) it it minimises the seriousness. And then if you say that somebody can be forgiven, it sounds like you're not treating it as a big enough deal. And so they said there are some things that should never be forgiven. He should never be allowed to play cricket for England. Sends the wrong message. The problem is, if you go down that route, if you say that there are things that can never be forgiven and people can never change, then there's no impetus to change. There's no drive to try and uh, educate or improve situations so that racism is actually dealt with. Instead, it's just, well, once a racist, always a racist, and they're never going to learn. There's no forgiveness. There's no possibility of change. Every prison sentence might as well be a life sentence because once a criminal, always a criminal. (coughs) Our society, I don't think, does a very good job of dealing with both the seriousness of sin or the reality of forgiveness. I think it struggles with both those things. But what we have here in Nehemiah 9 is a way of seeing the world, a way of seeing things that are wrong, which both deals with the seriousness of sin, but also gives the opportunity of a real and genuine forgiveness. Let's start with the seriousness of sin. And the way to understand the seriousness of getting things wrong is actually not to start with us, but to start with the God who made us. And that's what they do in Nehemiah chapter 9. They begin by reminding themselves of just how amazing God is. Verse 5, blessed be your glorious name and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens and all their starry host. The earth and all on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. God is good and glorious and holy and perfect. (coughs) Excuse me. And he's provided... (coughs) <coughs> for all that he's made. One second. You have to start with the glory of God. Because when you realise that there is this good God, this amazing God who is the reason that we exist, the reason that we have life, the reason that we have this beautiful world to enjoy, these sunny days like today, the friendships and the family and just all the fun that we have. 
It's because there's a God who wanted to give it to us, this wonderful and glorious God. Then that's where you start from, and you realize that when we turn away from that God, just how far we've fallen. To turn away from the God who gives us life and to act as if we don't need a God, we don't need him there, we'll just carry on in our own way and we'll be okay, is to turn our back on the one who loved us and made us and gives us this life in the first place. And as they retell their story in this chapter, that's what happens. Several times they realize that their ancestors, all the way through to them, had turned their back on God. Verse 26, but they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who had warned them. They committed awful blasphemies. Verse 28, but as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Verse 29, you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances of which you said, the person who obeys them will live by them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. That story of rebellion against God is not just true of God's people in the Old Testament. It's repeated throughout human history from the very beginning up to us today. It's easy to see it in other people, the sort of headline evil stories. The hard thing is to recognize that there's something of that in all of our stories. In Paul's letter to Romans in the New Testament, he puts it like this. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We've all sinned and fallen short. See, unlike the false forgiveness, which says it doesn't matter, it's not important, it doesn't cost anything, to get to a genuine forgiveness, you've got to begin with a genuine understanding of the wrongness of sin. The Bible says that these things are wrong, that they matter, that they have to be dealt with, including racism, but including as well the thoughts and actions that we all take part in. But are they dealt with by a God who then cancels his people or cancels his plans or cancels his promise no God's response is not to swing to the other extreme instead it is to find a way to bring the freedom of true forgiveness so having listed off the times that their ancestors and they themselves have got things wrong they also each time remind themselves that God has been gracious to them, kind to them, forgiven them, shown them this amazing, unending love, no matter how many times. They say, time and time again, they turned away, and yet, time and time again, God forgave them. Every time in this passage, they remember when they got it wrong, we get another reminder of God's grace. So verse 27 When they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them, and in your great compassion you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. Verse 28. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven, and in your compassion you delivered them time after time. Verse 31. In your great mercy you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Their story is still our story. None of us, none of us have deserved or earned God's love. Not by virtue of being particularly religious. Not by virtue of being particularly kind. Not by virtue of being born in a certain country. 
not by virtue of having a piece of plastic around your neck. None of those things earn God's love. All of us, Romans 3 says, have fallen short. It's a level playing field. But their story is still our story. When we realize that, yeah, do you know what? In my life, I have lived as if God isn't there. We take the seriousness of what that means, but we combine it with the reality of God's love and his forgiveness. Their story can still be our story. We have a God who takes sin and evil so seriously that the only way to deal with it was for God himself to go to the cross in our place. That he faced that separation from God the Father that would otherwise have been ours. That he took the penalty on himself rather than let it fall on us who deserved it. The cross says that wrong things really, really matter. It is a big deal. It is serious. And it's cost the life, the death of the Son of God. Unlike a world which tries to tolerate everything, praise God that he doesn't tolerate evil. Because it means that one day it will come to an end. But what the cross also tells us, as well as the seriousness of the things that we've done wrong, it shows us in glorious, three-dimensional wonder and worship that our God did not give up on us. That he didn't cancel his people, his plans, or his promises. But yes, the things we've got wrong are so serious, but even more great and wonderful is the grace and mercy of God shown through Jesus Christ. Or as that wonderful hymn puts it, on the cross, heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. That passage I mentioned in Romans, which shows that we've all fallen short of God's glory, goes on immediately to say this, just like in Nehemiah 9. They, they highlight the things that they've got wrong, but then they go straight to remind themselves that God still loved them and forgave them and gave them a fresh start. Well, it's exactly the same in Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption in Christ Jesus. True forgiveness, real forgiveness, costs. You know that. When you've really forgiven someone who's done something wrong to you, it's not as easy as saying, it doesn't matter, it's not a big deal. It costs. You have to give something of yourself to genuinely forgive someone who's wronged you. You have to give it away hurts and it costs but the outcome is so much better to show that forgiveness and that's what God did it cost him his own life on the cross that people like me and you could be forgiven takes sin seriously (coughs) but shows us the wonderful loving grace of God imagine if I'd taken that equipment back that I'd hired And instead of them just saying, it doesn't matter, we weren't going to sell it anyway, it's not a problem, pretend it never happened. Instead of them saying that, if they'd said, you know what, 
actually this has cost us quite a lot of money at a time when cash flow was pretty light anyway and we could have been hiring that out and because you held on to it and were too lazy basically to bring it back it's cost us lots of money it's damaged our business but our owner has forgiven you and he's taken the money out of his own pocket and he's put it into the business to cover up the cost of what you've done wrong that's forgiveness isn't it when you recognize the cost when you recognize the seriousness and yet at their own cost the person who's been wronged puts it right but on a far greater scale that's what happens on the cross that's the forgiveness which is handed out to you and me and we've just got to take it but there is this God who is holy and righteous and in his holy and righteousness he loves you he loves you he wants to show grace to you he wants to forgive you he wants you to enjoy what it means to be back with him living life his way because that's what he's made you for and that's the best way to live He loves you too much to let you go your own way on into death. He wants to give you life because he loves you. And he offers you this real forgiveness. Before I finish, I wonder if you fall into one of these categories. There's no need for me to be forgiven. Well, look at the cross. Be honest with yourself and look at the cross. Look at what Jesus had to do in order to bring you this forgiveness. Or maybe you're in the category more, I can't be forgiven. Look at the cross. Look on the Son of God who died for you. Who says, yes, those things that we get wrong in life, they matter. But what matters even more is that God has died in order to put that right. He's taken it away. He loves you. Or maybe you're in a category of looking around and thinking they can't be forgiven. People like that should never be forgiven. Look at the cross. Hear the words of Jesus to the the thief and the robber who died next to him, who simply acknowledges Jesus and is told, today you'll be with me in paradise. Look at the cross. Whether you don't think you need forgiveness, whether you think you could never be forgiven, whether you struggle with forgiving others, the answer is always the same. Come back to the cross. See there the love of God who died for a world that had turned its back on him in order to bring them life. To find the true freedom of forgiveness, of unending love, and the promise of his grace from now until forevermore.